Well, good morning again. My name is Danny. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, and as Dale said, may we be people of compassion and peace and love in the days and weeks ahead, and may we pray for each other, pray together, and pray for our country. Um, today, we're going to continue our series in the book of Mark. We're going to look at a passage, and my good friend Kellen is going to read that passage for us. So take it away. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he had taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he, went, so he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Thanks, Kellen. Thanks for reading that. Great job. Well, it's, uh, it's an honor to get to share this with you this morning and walk through this passage together. And we're going to kind of go line by line for a little bit, and then we're going to kind of pull up and see what it means for us. But what we're going to see as we look at this passage together is this idea of Jesus' authority throughout it. And authority is an interesting topic because it's this reality that we all experience, and it's sort of like trust in the same way that trust is earned, so is authority. You can earn trust of someone, or when you have authority, it's something that you've earned to have that place, right? But for us in this culture, in what we experience, we are probably a little more averse to authority than maybe we would want to admit. Like if someone came to me and said, I have authority, my initial reaction would probably be, like, prove it, right? Like, you don't, you don't just go and tell someone that you have authority. It's something that you earn. And particularly in the last couple of years, as people of authority and organizations of authority come into question, we're probably a little bit more averse to it than even before. But as we look, go through today's passage, I'm hoping we can get a fresh view of authority as we look at how the original audience, the people both living the story and the first readers, how they would have perceived authority, but also how Jesus models it. As we look at that, at, at those two things, I'm hoping that we can get a fresh view for what authority can look like for us. So if you are a head of a household, you have authority in your home, right? And so Monica and I, as the heads of our household, we have authority in our home, and especially when it comes to our kids, at least we like to think so most of the time. Um, and our kids have come to respect that authority over time, but it's not because since they were born that we like rock them and say, we have authority over you, we have authority over you. That's not how that happens, right? It's been years of nurturing and caring for them, for loving them and displaying a healthy uh, example of authority in their lives to the place where they would come to, again, most of the time, respect that authority. So they know the rules in our home and they know the consequences for breaking those rules, but they also know the security of living with under, within that authority. 
When their friends come over, Monica and I still have authority in our home over those little guests, but it's not the house that gives the authority, it's the owners of the home that create that authority, right? But how ridiculous would it be if like at dinner time I came over to your home and I said, all right, here's what we're gonna eat for dinner, here's how we're gonna eat it, here's what we're gonna talk about while we eat, and here's who's gonna do the dishes afterwards. You'd be like, there's the door and you don't need to ever come back, right? That would be ridiculous. But what if, what if you were in need and maybe you were sick or maybe you were grieving the loss of someone and our family offered to bring you a meal and we offered to eat with you and to just be with you. We prayed for you because you were in need. We, we uh, had a conversation over dinner and my kids offered to do the dishes when it was done. That happens all the time in our house. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't ever happen. Um, but the meal was pretty good, so you asked for the recipe and you started to cook it every once in a while. Or um, something we prayed resonated with you and you started to pray that as a part of your meal time. Or maybe one of the questions we asked one of your kids caused them to open up in a way that you hadn't seen them open up before and you started to ask that question as part of your dinner time routine. Or because you felt blessed that my kids did the dishes for you, you wanted to find ways to bless others and feel that same way. The difference between me coming and telling you that you had to embrace the values of my family in your family is completely different than us getting to model those values and you choosing to start to embrace some of those values in your family, right? So what we're gonna see today is that while kings and rulers typically assert their authority over people, Jesus asserts his authority for people. So let's jump into the passage here. And they went into Capernaum pause. We're not going to pause every five words, otherwise we'd be here until three, and you don't want to hear me talk that long, and neither do I. But it's important when we're reading scripture to remember where we are in the story, who we're talking about, what they would understand, all of those kind of things. We need to understand the context so that we can interpret it accurately as we look at it in our modern context. So when Mark says Capernaum, everybody who was there and everybody who would be originally reading this would have this mental picture that would come into mind. Like if I said to you, I'm going to the city, or if I'm going to Tahoe, or LA, right? Like we all have these mental pictures of what that is, by and large, what those cities represent. And so these people who would be reading this originally would have the same thing. And so a couple things about Capernaum. Uh, it's along a major trade route between Egypt in the south, Damascus in the north. It was critical for Rome, who was maintaining and expanding their kingdom at the time. So Rome would have an outpost there. They would have guards there. It would be important to their kingdom. There's also a major synagogue in, it, in Capernaum, which would mean that there would be Jewish leaders, rulers, teachers. They would be teaching in that synagogue. It's actually still a historic landmark today. About 1,500 people lived in the city at this time, but again, because it's along this trade route, it's a super transient city. So just from these couple of things, we can see that for Jesus, who's launching a ministry, who would obviously want it to expand and for the message to get out, this is a strategic place for him to set up shop. But it's not just strategic. What's cool about the four gospels is while they all give this high-level overview of Jesus' life and ministry because they're unique people writing about his life and because they had unique experiences, they emphasize different things. So Matthew, the way that he tells that Jesus went into Capernaum, says it like this. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So by Jesus moving into Capernaum, he's literally stepping into a prophecy of the Messiah that's over 500 years old. And the people would have known of this prophecy. And so when they're reading this, when they're hearing this, immediately they would say, there's something different about this guy. But also, the Jewish leaders at that time, they would know the prophecy even more. And so for Jesus to step into that, already, we're just a few verses in and the, and the, the leaders would be furious that he would step into something like that. Let's keep reading. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. We're going to see this word immediately 41 times through the book of Mark. And any time a word comes up that often, we have to wonder why does he use it? So uh, Dale said a couple weeks ago uh, that Mark writes like an action film. It's like if you've seen Top Gun Maverick, it's like the third act of Top Gun Maverick where it's just ridiculous and crazy and everything's happening like this, right? All the more reason why we need to slow down and pay attention to some of the details. So this word immediately, it's this Greek word uthos, and it means at once or directly. And one of the things we're going to see as we continue reading through the book of Mark is that Mark highlights this theme of Jesus being a servant. And the unique thing about a servant is that a good servant knows their task. They know their purpose. They don't delay to go fulfill it. And so I think Mark uses this word to, to call that out about Jesus, that he's a servant. But I also think he's calling out something, that there's something different about Jesus. Because as people are going to get to know Jesus, as they see as he steps into this prophecy of the Messiah, they're going to expect him to lead a revolution. But most revolutionaries I've heard of are not, they're bold and they're brash, and in a lot of ways, um, they may take a lot of risks, and they might be offensive in some ways. But Jesus is over and over portrayed as calm and gentle. He's intentional and clear. We're going to see throughout Jesus' life that he brings a peaceful presence and invites everyone to experience the same. Verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I love the word astonished here because it means literally stuck, struck with shock. Like people are losing their minds or shook, as the kids say, right? Like they're shook at this teaching. And I'm just trying to, I would, just for a second, imagine what would be so good in a teaching that you would be shook by it. I, there's probably lots of things I could say that you would be shook in a bad way. We're not going to do that this morning. But what would be a good thing where you would be like, I'm losing my mind at what he's teaching? See, the audience that Jesus is teaching to, it says that they were used to being taught by the scribes. Now, again, the scribes are people who were responsible for knowing, teaching, enforcing the law of the Old Testament. It's what we have is the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the story of God and Israel, and in it are 613 laws that Israel was required to follow. And so often the teaching was thought of that the scribes would refer to the authority of others and say things like, you've heard Rabbi so-and-so say this, or you've, you know that the Torah says this. But we saw a couple weeks ago in Mark 1.15 that Jesus' teaching is summarized in, these, in this way. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Rabbi so-and-so says the kingdom of God is at hand. Or the Torah says, repent. He just says it. And so immediately, people are noticing something different. And so this would, this would add to the feeling of astonishment. But when he talks about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about the kingdom as in a place. It's not like, now there are these borders and walls of the kingdom. The people would have heard the kingdom as in this idea of the reign of the king. So anywhere the king reigns is the kingdom. And in that time, being a citizen of a kingdom is what would give you your freedom and your rights. And so it may very well be the most important thing about you, the kingdom that you're from. 
But Jesus is saying, repent, turn away from what you're doing because the reign of God is here. The rule of God is here on earth again, and it's me. Starts to sound pretty astonishing. The example I was thinking about is that the people were used to hearing their teachers talk about God, like looking at a picture of a restaurant. And maybe with their best sermons, like looking at a picture of food from that restaurant. It would be like scrolling through Instagram and looking at the super famous restaurant, the French Laundry, and like looking through their Instagram profile, right? It would be like looking at that picture versus going to the French Laundry and sitting down and being served 14 courses, plate after plate, perfectly prepared, all of the amazing smells by the chef himself, Thomas Keller, like handing it to you. Looking at a picture of food and eating a meal are completely different experiences, just like hearing about God and experiencing God are completely different experiences. So again, this is why people are beginning to feel astonished. But notice too, Jesus doesn't say, I have authority, so repent. They naturally perceive his authority by what he says. And I think that's because when he uses the word kingdom of God, just like when they heard Capernaum, they get a mental picture of what that is. And so I wanna take a few minutes to talk about that. And Dale says this often, but we have to go back to the Garden of Eden. And the reason we do is because it's literally God's perfected creation. It's the thing that humanity has spent generations, our entire history trying to get back to or recreate on our own. And it's the thing that at the end of time is gonna be perfectly restored. God promises to restore it. So we have to have this mental picture in our mind when we hear the kingdom of God. So in the garden, there's a couple of characteristics I wanna call out. One, God is king. He created it, he rules over it, it's his. He's king in the garden. Creation is in perfect harmony. The creation narrative, when you read through it in Genesis 1 and 2, God says over and over and over again, it's good. One of the practical examples of this is that God brings the animals to Adam so he can name them. All of the animals. This is like a crazy thing to me that he brings all of the animals right up to Adam and Adam names them. And I have just a quick story. A couple years ago, we went to Yellowstone National Park. Anybody been there before? A handful of you? Not very many. Okay, so if you drive around Yellowstone, there's all of these little spots. You have to drive for like hours to get to these spots. But every once in a while, there's these things. You park and you get out and you walk out this trail and you get to go see something beautiful. So we pull up to this one spot and it's like there's this hill that you go up and on the other side of this hill, there's this beautiful pond. Have you, do we know what we're talking about? Like the ponds, I should have got a picture of this. There's these beautiful geyser ponds that are, you can't find anywhere else. Anyways, we get to this spot and we're looking up at the hill and you see the trail that goes up there. But on this hill, there's like 20 of these huge bison. These things are like the size of a Tesla. They're like huge up there, right? You don't want to mess with these bison. So uh, we're with a couple of families. The gills were there. Um, and the families decided, you know, we're not going to risk it. We're not going to go up by those bison. But Mark Yoder and I, Mark's on staff here, one of my best friends. Mark Yoder and I are like, no big deal. We're going to go. We're going to go up by the bison. It's going to be fine. So we're about like three quarters of the way up the hill. And there's this bison. He's got to be... I don't know, 20 yards from the trail, and I lock eyes with this thing, and I'm going like this as far as I can, and then I'm like, we're on our way. So we get to the top of the hill. Our families can see the entire thing. They're watching us from the bottom. They can see the entire thing, and as soon as we get to the top of the hill, what we don't know, because we're looking this way now, is that bison starts to follow us up the trail. So they're like freaking out. There's no cell service. They can't call us and tell us that anything's happening, and so we're like, we're just carefree walking over this hill with this Tesla following us that wants to eat us for lunch. And, um, and one of our other brave friends, he comes to our rescue, Andrew West, he comes up behind the trail and 
He wasn't sure what he was going to find on the other side, but everything was fine. The bison just wanted to go get some fresh grass. All that being said, I was in uh, I, I was so aware that creation is not in perfect harmony at this moment when I come back down and my family was so mad because they thought I was dead by a bison, right? Like Adam is naming all of the, Adam named the bison. That thing came up to him. He's probably like petting it. And that bison just wanted us for lunch. Anyways, creation was in perfect harmony. It is not anymore. And that is because Adam and Eve knew the rules of the kingdom. That's another characteristic of the garden. They knew the rules of the kingdom and they operated within them at least for a while. And the most beautiful characteristic of the garden is that God is in it. He's present. He dwells among the people. He walks freely in the garden. Now we know the story. Adam and Eve took the fruit. They believed the lie of the enemy. Um, They broke the rule of the kingdom and the consequence was that the design of the kingdom was broken. Humanity was no longer able to rule with God the way that it was intended because we wanted the kingdom without the king. So then we have the entire Old Testament. It tells the story of how God tried to, God provided ways to bridge that gap to make it possible for the people to rule with God once again. But just like Adam and Eve, the story of Israel is marked by the choice time and time again to choose the kingdom without the king. So then we have the prophets, these faithful followers of God who God would speak through to Israel to reassure them of two primary things. One, that God never stopped reigning on earth. And two, that the perfection of the garden would one day be restored. So then we fast forward back to our story today. This audience, these first century Jewish people, they're longing for their nation to be restored. They've been waiting for centuries. And because they know the story of the Old Testament, they know the promises of the prophets, they would be waiting for four general sources of authority that they would be looking for and waiting for that would mark the kingdom being restored. First is the king. Remember, they're living under Roman exile. They've been waiting for the rightful king to come back and rule and reestablish them as an independent nation again. Second is the tabernacle or the temple. After the fall, God no longer walked freely among the people, and so they built the temple as his dwelling place on earth. But in the time of our story, the temple is just a shell of what it used to be. And so the people longed for the day when the temple would be restored, fulfilling their longing to have access to God. Third is the Torah, the law. It's the covenant agreement the people made with God that they would be his people and his conduit of blessing to the world. It would be their covenant that they could be his representative to make things right in the world. And then the fourth is the new creation. The prophets point to this future reality where the entire cosmos is put back right, where heaven and earth and everything in them is made whole. So this is the mental picture that people have that morning when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. All of these things would be right there on the, in, in their mind. And so imagine yourself in this story. You live in oppression. Your family has lived in oppression for as long as you can remember. For generations, it's all you have known. And you go to church every week because that's just what you do and that's just what you've done. And every week the teaching is essentially a recital of some portion of the 613 laws that you're required to follow. And then this one Sunday, the quietest guy in the room gets up and he says, stop what you're doing, change your mind and your purpose because everything you've been waiting for, the king, the temple, your access to God, the Torah, your ability to partner with God, and the new creation that's been promised for centuries are here and I am bringing them to you. That is why people are feeling astonished that morning. But Jesus doesn't just teach about this. He's in the middle of teaching, and look at what happens. 
And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Monica and I were talking about this section of this passage this week, and she said, isn't it so interesting that the very first thing or person to acknowledge who Jesus is is the enemy? And immediately when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God publicly, the enemy is so defensive and scared and on defense because Jesus is coming against it. So we have to acknowledge that while the spiritual world and the natural world are distinct, they very much overlap. And we could spend a ton of time here, and someday we will, but what I really want to highlight is that while the enemy obviously has power on the earth, and that happened at the fall, it's only because of the permission of God. There's an example in Job where, it, where uh, let's look at Job 1.12. It says, the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that Job has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. See, God sets boundaries for what the enemy can do. And so look at what Jesus does. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. So the enemy only has power on the earth by permission from God. And Jesus, by commanding the enemy out of this man, not only aligns himself with God by revoking that permission, he displays the same exact authority that God has. This is astonishing stuff. And so in the middle of Jesus teaching that he's bringing the reign of God back to the earth, he shows them. He confronts evil at its very core. He displays the heart of the kingdom for people. And not just in the fact that he rebukes the demon, but even in the way he does it. The demon lashes out, it's chaotic, it's sporadic, it's insecure, and Jesus responds calmly and intentional. The reign of the enemy is marked with chaos, while the reign of God is marked with peace. Let's keep reading. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. See, I don't think you have a Sunday morning like this and then just go out to your car, look at each other, and say, what should we have for lunch? Right? Like what you have experienced, you're telling everybody about this, whether you're like tweeting, TikToking, Instagramming, messaging, emailing, I don't care what it is to tell everybody you know, that is what these people are doing because they've had such an, a powerful encounter with Jesus. And in the midst of this church service going viral, look at what Jesus does. And side note, anytime we see the word immediately, let's remember the theme that Mark's trying to remind us of, that Jesus is a servant. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came by, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. Jesus continues to serve, and he displays the authority now over the natural world, literally bringing about new creation. We see the heart of the kingdom again for people. He's restoring this idea of shalom, of wholeness. He's freeing people from disease and burden and restoring dignity. But he doesn't stop with just one. This isn't just like a friends and family deal. Look at this next section. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I was so interested that why did they wait until sundown? But remember, we're still in the same day. This is still Sabbath. And so it would have been illegal for people to carry anything, let alone people, to Jesus. 
And so imagine the, emo- the emotion and anticipation. You experienced what you did that morning in church or you saw about it from somebody who tweeted about it and, you've just been, and you have a friend who is oppressed by demons or you have a, a family member who's sick but you can't legally carry that person to Jesus even though you hope that he can help. And so you're, si- you're sitting all day at home wondering, will Jesus heal my daughter? Can he deliver my friend? You know where Jesus is because Andrew just posted a picture of it on Instagram and you recognize the house, right? And so you know where Jesus is and so you just have to wait. But as soon as the sun goes down, as soon as it's allowed, it says that everybody, the entire town, 1,500 people, went as quickly as they could to Jesus, hoping that he would help. And Mark tells us that he did. Several commentaries I read about this think that that word many means that he healed everybody who needed it. So again, there's 1,500 people gathered at this little house, which to me is like hundreds of people got new life that night. And the way that Mark is writing is that anybody who reads this would just expect that Jesus doing this stuff is totally normal but it's crazy. But Jesus living out the authority of the kingdom of God is normal. It's effortless, it's calm, it's peaceful. It's how God designed it to be. So in 13 verses that document maybe 12 hours of time, we see Jesus display his authority as the king teaching about his own kingdom. We see his authority stepping in as a fulfillment of prophecy and of the Torah. We see his display of authority over evil and over the spiritual world with the same command as God himself, but walking among the people. We see his display of authority over creation and over the natural world. So everything Israel was waiting and looking for, the king, the tabernacle, the Torah, the new creation, Jesus steps into in 12 hours. So the kingdom of God is a huge deal. And it's a beautiful reality that every single person is invited into. But in 2022, in our Western, individual, individualistic, post-truth, soundbite culture, imagining an encounter with Jesus like the people of Capernaum had might feel impossible. And if you're here this morning and you feel that way, I don't blame you. But if Mark expects that when we read this, we would understand that Jesus operating with this kind of authority in the kingdom of God is perfectly normal, then experiencing the kingdom of God is totally possible. And so a couple things as we finish up. The authority of Jesus offers an invitation to belong. And that invitation is for everybody. See, Jesus didn't ask people where they were from before he healed their sickness. He didn't ask them what they had done before he delivered them from the oppression of the enemy. He didn't ask them to perform some sort of ceremony or get their life together before he delivered them from disease. He just took care of them. And Jesus makes it clear that he is for everyone and everyone is welcome. But when it comes time to make the choice to belong, to sit under the reign and authority of Jesus, we face the same decision that Adam and Eve did. We face the same decision that Israel did. And that is to believe the goodness of God or the lie of the enemy. And the lie of the enemy is that he, he would love for you to believe that you don't belong in the kingdom. He would love for you to believe that you could make a better kingdom on your own. And just like our home, our kids know the consequences when they break the rules of our home, but they also know of the security and the confidence of living under the authority of loving parents. So they don't ask for, they don't ask for permission if they can come inside after they've been playing in the backyard. They don't ask for permission to get a cup of water if they're thirsty. They don't hesitate to wake me up if they've had a bad dream in the middle of the night. <laughs> 
because they know the privileges that come with being in the family. What's interesting is when their friends come over, especially friends who haven't spent a lot of time in our home, they don't know the, the privileges of the family yet, so they ask for the basic privileges that my kids just know. But one of my favorite things is when friends come over who have spent a lot of time in our home, they know where the snack drawer is and they don't hesitate to get something from it. They know where the water cups are and if they're thirsty, they just get a drink of water. And maybe one of my favorite things is they tattle on my kids to me when my kids break my rules. <laughs> they know what it's like to be a part of the family because they've lived it. And when you're in the family, when you live in the kingdom, you don't ask for permission for the benefits of the king. Jesus' authority invites you, every single person, to be a part of the kingdom and to enjoy the confidence and security the reign of the king provides. The writer of Hebrews says it like this, because of Jesus, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The enemy would love for us to settle for our own kingdoms or the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus invites all of us to be a part of the kingdom of God like a child is part of a loving family. So the authority of Jesus offers an invitation to belong. And when you belong in the kingdom, the authority of Jesus offers hope to believe. Jesus ordering the demons around and healing people from illness is firsthand evidence that all of the consequences of the fall, sickness, evil, brokenness, death, separation from God, Jesus has the authority to overcome all of it and to make it right. Not just back then, today. When Jesus came to the earth as a human, the train ushering in the kingdom that the prophets told about, ushering in this new creation, that train left the station and it does not stop until it reaches its final destination. And look at the beautiful picture of what that's gonna be like. <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. No death, no pain. God will live among his people. Does that sound familiar? It's the Garden of Eden, perfectly restored. And this is the promise of eternity, but Jesus is saying right here in Mark that that restoration process has already begun. That the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here right now. And so the hope that you can believe, the hope that you can rest in, when you live in the kingdom of God is that whatever consequences you experience of the fall, either of your own doing or of the, just because we live in a broken world, is that Jesus has the authority to overcome it. And the promise is that he will, either in this life or in the new creation to come. But it's more than just the healing of illness or the restoration of brokenness. The hope is that the creator of the universe is here to comfort you that the king of kings is advocating and battling for you in the spiritual realm, that the living God lives within you, bringing you peace and encouragement. Look what Psalm 34 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Paul says it like this, praise be to the God and, the, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. 
The hope to believe is that even in our darkest, most difficult moments, that God sees you and that God is with you. I can't explain the peace of Christ. If anybody can, I would love to hear it. But I've experienced the peace of Christ, and so I know it and I can trust it. And Paul says that the peace of God surpasses all understanding and that that peace guards our hearts and minds. So Jesus' authority offers a hope to believe right now and, the future, and in the future. And so when we belong and when we believe, the authority of Jesus comes with a responsibility to participate. See, when Jesus claims that the kingdom of God returns to the earth, it doesn't stop by just him claiming it or saying it. He lives out what it looks like to participate in the kingdom of God. And like we saw, one of the themes that Mark calls out what it looks like to participate is that Jesus is a servant. And so when you belong in the kingdom of God, what was given to Jesus is given to you. So this is not a kingdom of passivity. It's not a kingdom of personal preference. It is a kingdom of participation. And in the perfect picture of the kingdom of God, back in the garden, the role of humans was to rule with God, to work and take care of creation. These words literally mean serve and keep watch. So in the kingdom of God, each of us has a specific assignment to serve and a responsibility to keep watch to preserve all of creation. That's what it looks like to rule alongside. That's what it looks like to practice the way of Jesus. And so for those who accept Jesus' invitation to belong and believe, it's our responsibility to practice the way of Jesus, to practice the way of the future kingdom right here and right now. In some of Jesus' final words to his followers before he goes back to heaven, look what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And then a little bit later he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. In this case, to witness is to serve others by sharing the goodness of your experience. It's sharing the hope you have because of the belonging that you know. While kings typically assert their authority over people, Jesus asserts his authority for people. But he doesn't stop there. He shares his authority with the people. He says to everyone who receives that authority, everyone who accepts the invitation to belong and to believe, to go and bring more people into that experience, to share the good news with everyone else, invite more people into the kingdom, welcome more people into the family, break down the barriers that might stop someone from choosing to believe and to belong, live out the hope that you now have because of the authority Jesus has over everything. So may we be people that use the authority that Jesus gives us in the same way that we saw him use it, not over creation, but for creation. Not over people, but for people. Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, and so we praise you. We give you glory. We give you honor. We love you. We thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us so that we could be here today, that we could be called sons and daughters, that we could be a part of the kingdom of God and experience the realities confidence, the security that you provide. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here today. It is a joy. It's an honor. It's a privilege to gather and worship together. Um, if you are new with us, we would love to meet you. Would you make sure to fill out that card at calvarylg.com welcome. And if you made a decision to give your life to Christ, to submit to the authority of Jesus today, would you fill out that card just so we could get a chance to meet you and have a conversation and pray with you? We would love that. 
Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.